Hey there, gang. Welcome back to Meddling Kids Podcast, where we cover all things scary and weird for listeners near and far. You are now listening to part two of A Tragedy in Gander Lake. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you can check it out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Our usual disclaimer that we do not intend to disrespect anyone mentioned in this podcast. We simply research these cases online and discuss them for educational purposes. Another trigger warning that this case does talk about the murders of two children. With that being said, let's get into it. Meddling Kids Podcast, Season 2 Finale, A Tragedy in Gander Lake, Part 2. So, we're going to talk now about life after the death of the girls, a few weeks after the funeral. So, after the funeral, Nelson proposed a trip to St. John's just to get out of town. Jennifer reluctantly agreed, but she had no more energy to argue with Nelson. She was confused as to why Nelson wanted to take a four-hour drive to the city, but didn't ask why. He said he had no money for her to do the laundry, so where was the money coming from to be able to stay in St. John's? I think he also wanted to get out because everyone was talking about him and stuff, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. There was definitely alternative, like, he didn't want to just get out for her. People were talking. They had been interviewed, I think, by the cops and stuff at this point. Mm -hmm. It's a small town. People are going to talk no matter what. When they arrived at St. John's, Nelson drove straight to the Avalon Mall where he sat up and told Jennifer he actually had no money. And at this point, Jennifer's sedative was starting to kick in. So instead of arguing and asking for answers, she went to sleep. I love that just there's so many times when something is happening, Jennifer's like, you know what, I'm just going to take a nap. She's like, good night. I'm going to take a nap right here. Poor thing. Just, I'd just rather go to sleep out of it. When she woke up the next morning, the heat in the car made it hard to breathe. Plus, she really had to use the bathroom, so getting out of the car would have done her wonders. Mm-hmm. As she reached for the handle, Nelson said, don't touch it. You're staying in, aboard this car. I'm not getting out, and you're not getting out either. Jennifer thought Nelson surely couldn't last much longer in the car. They both hadn't eaten, and it was getting warmer and warmer as the sun started to rise. As she viewed the teenagers get on and off the buses, she admired how none of them were in a hurry, and then thought of her own daughters and how they would never become teenagers or be able to hang out with kids. She saw a woman carrying bags and pushing strollers and carts with children. It was becoming overwhelming to watch, so she embraced her own body and went to sleep. Like, literally, girl, that's so sad. Like, she's like, she's just lost her children. Now her psychomaniac shit-smearing husband... (laughs) Is, has her held hostage in Sorry. this car. It's not funny. And she's literally just trying to people view to kill time. And she can't even do that without feeling sad. I hate him. Anyways. When she woke back up, it was nighttime. And the only car that was in the parking lot was theirs. She thought it would be the perfect time to get out and stretch. But oh no! Nelson would not allow this. This is when Jennifer started to really worry about what this psychotic man had planned. I really am surprised that, like, at this point in the case that he didn't kill her. I am, too. I'm shocked. No, I am, too. Because I thought that's that that's where it was going. You no, know so I mean? was I. The next morning, so this is the third day. Third day now. Jennifer woke up and the parking lot was full again. She felt sick. She asked Nelson to call her aunt or uncle's. For somewhere to stay, but all he said was no. She pleaded with him, saying they'd give him gas money to be able to get home, but he wouldn't budge. 
The next morning rolled around, and Jennifer was even more sick, extremely sick. She asked Nelson to at least let her get in the back of the car so she was able to stretch out. She knew if she soon didn't get food, she would end up in the hospital, or worse. Without saying anything, Nelson got out of the car and opened the door for her to climb in the back. She could tell that Nelson had something on his mind, and she wondered if he had even slept within the four days that they had been parked there. He was literally sat up. He was like this. Like, bitch. So fucking weird, man. What a scary cunt. It's fucked up. But suddenly, she noticed Nelson started kind of nodding off. He was like... Yeah, doing that thing, you know when you're trying to sleep on a plane? Or trying not to sleep on a plane? Oh my god. Okay, so then Nelson fell asleep. But Jennifer, you know, she was like, I'm getting the fuck out of here, man. Mm -hmm. So she seized that opportunity to get help. She nervously opened the car door, and she realized Nelson would not be waking up anytime soon. She looked around the parking lot, desperate to find someone to help her, when she finally saw an old man who seemed to have a friendly face. He spotted her first, and with the way he was staring, she was wondering, like, what the fuck do I look like? Am, like, am I good? She asked the man if he could buy her some Chinese food, and he said he couldn't, but he would be back at 7, and he would bring her food then. He, he was like, I have no money on me, but I'll be back at no, 7. He knew who she was, is why. <laughs> with the feeling of defeat, Jennifer struggled to get back into the car. And the man watched as she got into the back seat and laid down. Little did she know, the police had been searching for her and Nelson for the past four days. When the man called the police that afternoon to report that he had witnessed it, didn't take long for them to show up to the mall. Jennifer was taken to the police station in the first cruiser, and Nelson was put in handcuffs and put into another car. At the station, Jennifer was given the chance to freshen up and get some food. Some grub into her. Probably fucking almost dead, I'd say. I know. This four days, no water, no food. The police informed Jennifer that Nelson had a few seizures on the way to the station and that she would have to drive back sure. to Gander. Sure he did. The officers gave her money to get back, and that she did. So she, they just let her drive back. So being held hostage in the parking lot for four days, the police didn't think maybe we should keep these two separated? He was just pissed that they found out about his seizures and they took his license I away. Again. Like, what? And he complained about it all the way back to Gander. Yeah. Okay, so... Officers get in contact with Jenny. Jenny. And they tell her that they believe that Nelson killed his daughters. And that's when everything starts to make sense to Jennifer. And at this point, she wants nothing to do with this man. They then told her it was time for her to leave him behind. She agreed. She was gonna move to, she was gonna move to PEI and live with her sister, but she had to stay in Cornerbrook for the time being. Yeah. So before they had it all organized, they little layover. Um, the police brought her to her apartment to pack up her belongings, and most of what she packed up actually belonged to the girls. She did like. She had tubs. She had containers of like the girls' clothes, and she everywhere she moved, she, she brought them with them. her. Also, Nelson wasn't at the apartment this time because he was still. No, the, the police were like helping her. Yeah, out a little get, sneaky getaway. Get the fuck out of this! They're mm -hmm. putting a little witness protection on her. You mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. So with sixty dollars in her pocket and her belongings packed up, she left Nelson Hart and Gander. For the first time since her daughters died, Jennifer felt as though she could finally start to get her life back together. 
Jennifer was ready for her move with her sister in PEI, but she told the police that she would not be boarding the ferry alone. Not because she was nervous, but because she couldn't stand the thought of water anymore. That's sad. So sad. The last time Jennifer had made the drive to Port of Bass, the girls had been with her. By 10 a.m., they arrived at the ferry and they were ready to board. Jennifer had made her sister promise that they wouldn't look at the water as she could not stand the sight of it. When they got off the ferry in Nova Scotia, her mother was there waiting along with her brother-in-law. They then took the drive to Cape Breton, so far away from home and so far away from the graveyard, which she took comfort in. Soon the car slowed as they were boarding the last ferry to PEI. When they reached her sister's house, she was greeted by her nieces and nephews, whom she was so happy to see, yet she still felt so far from home. Okay, so the house is like a bungalow-style house. Classic. And it was very, very crowded. Um, I believe it was a three-bedroom, and there was four children, Suze, her husband, their mother, and their mother's boyfriend, Pat, who was their stepdad. But she felt it was her safest option. Like, she felt very, over, like, cramped, mm-hmm. but she knew it was, like, the safest place for her to be, and her family agreed with that. She began to settle in, but she just really missed visiting the girls at the graveyard. Um, it had only been a month since they passed away at this point. Yeah. Soon, Nelson's Pearl. Mother- her name's Pearl. You just scared the shit Sorry. out of me. I was like, <laughs> Nelson's mother, Pearl. I never even put in Nelson's mom's name until like the very end. <laughs> until she's on. I'm staying. Yeah. Soon Nelson. Why do I keep saying Nelson? <laughs> Soon Nelson's mother started calling Susan saying that she knew Jennifer was staying there. But Susan would always be like, no, Jennifer is not here. Like, that's someone telling you lies. Jennifer knew Nelson's mother would only defend him and tell her she was better off with him and that he wouldn't hurt her and he didn't hurt the girls it's always the boy moms hey (laughs) so true as soon jennifer spotted someone looking into the house as she called pat who ran out to find that no one was there but taking no chances they called the police who then informed them that they could not find nelson anywhere the next day patrol cars were doing rounds on the house to make sure that jennifer was safe And their due diligence to keep her safe was just making everything seem so much more like he was guilty to Jennifer. Mm -hmm. Despite being safe, Jennifer was very unhappy. She was homesick and wanted nothing but to visit her girls. She was a grieving mother who couldn't even see her daughter's graves. On December 19th, Jennifer and her mother and her stepfather, Pat, got into the car and headed back to Gander. Jennifer was finally going home. They wouldn't get to Gander right away. They stopped at Jennifer's mother's house on the south coast, nearly three hours away. She was happy to be back on the island, but still wasn't content, and she wouldn't be until she was in Gander. Christmas came and went, and she still longed to see her girls. Soon enough, Jennifer was back in Gander and settling into a transition house, a place she had become too familiar with over the years. Yeah, so a transition house is like... Where she would go as, like, when she was scared of Nelson. Yeah, she went there a couple times. A couple times, yeah. He always knew when she was there. Yeah, and he would be like, come home, and she'd be like, okay. Yeah, so this point, like, before we even talked about this thing, like, mm-hmm. she she is in the transition house at this point. Mm-hmm. Nelson finds out that she's there, and he just keeps calling and calling, 
And, you know, Jennifer took pity on him again and decided to go for coffee with him. And she did end up getting back with him at this point. Um, And they moved to Grand Falls. Falls. Yeah. So while they're living in Grand Falls, they have this apartment. Mm -hmm. And it's like a shithole, right? Right. And then, so I think there's like a ton of shit wrong with it. Mm -hmm. And then they... I think it's a apartment they live in waiting for another apartment that they wanted. But yeah. the other apartment that they're waiting for need a lot of work. So Jennifer literally volunteered to her landlord and was like, listen, if you let us move in now, like, I will fix everything up with this house. Like, I just want to get the fuck out where we are right now. And I want to move into the spot. Like, this is where I want to be. Mm-hmm. So now that brings us into the final part of the... The Stingethan Jones. All right. So, let me get comfortable here, because this is about to get crazy, y'all. This is the nitty-gritty. All right, so now we're in uh, February of 2005, and Nelson and Jennifer head to the dollar store so Jennifer can pick up a few things to fix up that um, apartment like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So, during the time that they're in the dollar store, Nelson stayed in their car in the parking lot. All of a sudden, Nelson bursts into the dollar store, bragging to Jennifer that he had just acquired $50. He was skipping up and down the aisles like a child. Jennifer questioned where the hell Nelson got 50 bucks from. Like, what? Was he going to turn in tricks out in the parking lot? Right. Nelson said there was a man in the parking lot that came right up to his car window and that he could hardly understand a word the man was saying because he was from Montreal and had a French accent. Thick old French accent. The man told Nelson that he had a trucking company and that him and his sister drove to Newfoundland a while ago. The man told Nelson that his sister was a drug addict and an alcoholic, that his mother was dying of cancer, and they were trying to get his sister home to Montreal before their mom died. The man said his sister was on welfare in Grand Falls and she was missing, so we offered Nelson $50 to help him find her. This was just the beginning of what Nelson and Jennifer didn't know was a sting operation named Mr. Big, to take down Nelson for the murders of their twin daughters. So, Nelson and Jennifer meet this mysterious Frenchman back at their apartment. The first thing Jennifer noticed was the big black pickup truck in their driveway. This is something to remember later on in The Sting. So this young, strapping Frenchman hopped out of the truck, running towards their car. And he opened Jennifer's door for her. This man proceeds to compliment how good of a husband Nelson is and how grateful he is for helping him look for his sister. Jennifer thought this man must be manic. He was just so high energy. Seemed like something was clearly off with him. He was so persistent and eager to become friends with them. She just had that feeling in her gut. So then Nelson hops into the truck with this man, whose name was finally introduced as Steph. We love Steph. Come on, Steph. Jennifer remained skeptical of what was going on, but honestly, she was just happy that Nelson would be out of her hair for a few hours so she could work on the apartment on her own with some peace and quiet. Every time Nelson leaves, it's like Jennifer was just happy that he was gone. Yeah. After a full day of searching for Steph's sister, Nelson and Steph returned back to the apartment around 5 p.m., but the pair seemed to have no luck, and the plan was to continue the search the next day in Bishop Falls. <laughs> Bishop. Where is Bishop's Falls? It's in Central. Okay. It's like, I think it's like an hour or two from Grand Falls. Is it? That far? 
Is it an hour from Grand Falls, Bishops? Like a half hour? Yeah. I've never been. Yeah, roughly, roughly. I've dabbled in the men from Grand Falls. Anyways. <laughs> All right. Cut that out. Right. That's embarrassing. Cut that I out. I will. <laughs> Steph promised to pay Nelson $100 for the next day work. Obviously, Nelson agreed. Mm. The next morning at 9 a.m., the men were off to continue their search for Steph's sister and Bishop Foles. Late afternoon, Jennifer's phone rang. It was Nelson. He said not to worry about supper, supper because Steph was going to pick something up for them. They showed up with pizza and there was, no, there was still no sign of Steph's sister. Steph talked about how he was setting up a business and would be spending more time on the island. They chatted for a bit and Steph asked Nelson if he could help him from time to time. Nelson agreed and Steph gave him a carton of cigarettes even though he didn't smoke. <laughs> I don't even know why that... He probably was going to sell them or something. He told him to sell them at the bar. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, Nelson was pleased with the $150 he had earned for a couple of days' work, but Jennifer, Jennifer still had her suspicions. February 16th. Steph left Nelson a message saying he'd found his missing sister and wanted to meet at the Mount Payton Hotel the next day. The morning of, Nelson was acting nervous. Jennifer thought it was strange that Steph wanted to meet him at the hotel and suggested that they drive around town so they could find him. I don't know. I don't. Even when I was typing this, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, just go to the fucking hotel. Anyways. They drove around for a while and decided to drop by the police station. That's when they spotted Steph's big black pickup truck sitting in front of the police station. Oh, God. Jennifer knew it was his license plate, too. She had remembered his license plate. Nelson was spooked. And so he and Jennifer drove straight to Gander to see his mother. Jennifer called the police, and she wanted to know if something was illegal or if someone was trying to get Nelson in trouble. The RCMP ensured them that there was nothing illegal, and that, and that was the end of the conversation. They headed back to Grand Falls that evening. Steph had left a note on their door asking them to call. He reassured them that it wasn't his truck at the station, and if Nelson didn't show up for work, it wasn't good for business. Oh, oops. That's when Steph pitched an idea for a job to drive a truck to Cornerbrook for him. Between February 17th and February 21st, 2005, Nelson did multiple jobs for Steph, and he was paid well. One of these jobs was to bring a U-Haul to St. John's. Steph was adamant of Jennifer not going on the job with Nelson, but she went anyways. Once they arrived in the St. John's, they checked into the Holiday Inn Hotel. At 6.10 p.m., Steph knocked on the hotel room door, and Jennifer hid in the bathroom. Nelson wanted her to listen to what Steph was saying to find out if what he was doing was illegal. Steph kept talking about having to meet a client downtown, and Nelson was trying to get out of it. Eventually, Nelson admitted Jennifer was in the bathroom. Steph convinced Nelson to join him to meet the client, and Jennifer was left in the room to wait. A few hours later, Nelson returned and seemed scared. <laughs> Sorry. He did. He was scared because the whoever was driving them was driving like a fucking maniac. Oh, was he? He was. He thought they were gonna throw him in the harbor. That's what he said. He was fucking shit faced. He should have. <laughs> yeah, they should have. He would have sank. <laughs> God. Anyways, so on their way back to Grand Falls, Jennifer questioned Steph if he was dealing drugs and if he was legit. If so, she didn't want Nelson to be part of it. Steph said he wasn't a pig or anything like that. And once they got to know him better. He'd tell them all about his past. February 22nd, 2005. Nelson and Steph fly to Halifax. As they drive into town, Steph told Nelson that he'd done a lot of bad shit in his life. 
Nelson told Steph he'd done some bad things, too. Oh, my fuck. During, during the trip, Nelson was introduced to a man named Pat. He was the company's Maritimes manager. After a few days of driving and delivering what Nelson believed to be airplane parts, he was instructed to deliver freight back into the island. On February 28th, he was back into St. John's and was paid $1,100. March 3rd, 2005, Pat and Nelson were having dinner, and Pat told Nelson he hated police, <laughs> and if they knew he was on the island, they'd be all over him. Pat threatened Nelson if he ratted on him, he would kill him. He stressed that people who work in this organization don't tell stories to their wives. What the fuck? Yep. March 16th, 2005, Nelson flies to Halifax again. His first job would be to pick up a package containing fraudulent credit cards at the YMCA. I thought I said for the YMCA. I was like, not the gym. <laughs> During this time frame, up until April 10th, Nelson did multiple jobs and got to know the boys. He got to meet Pat's girlfriend, Carol, and they hit it off immediately. And Nelson wouldn't wait to in- couldn't wait to introduce Jennifer to Carol. April 11th, 2005. Nelson and Steph eat lunch alone. He learns about the structure of the organization he was working for, and apparently it controlled 70% of the prostitution ring in Montreal and took 50% of the money earned. Jesus. Steph told Nelson he had to deal with two prostitutes by assaulting them to send a message to them that the organization does not get ripped off. What the fuck? Didn't actually happen. What is going on? This is a sting. I know. He's, they're trying to get in. Getting in character. Get, they're trying to get Nelson to trust them, that's all. Nelson was probably like, Yeah. I love beating women. Nelson told Steph he had no problem getting his hands dirty either and that he had done something terrible in his past. He said one day he would tell him and it would bring tears to Steph's eyes. Nelson said he had dealt with two people and they were both in the ground now. He said it was all over the news and everyone talked about it. I am bragging, little bitch. Nelson said he could prove it. Everyone had talked about it and there were 600 people in the church. He took out his wallet and showed them a picture of two little girls wearing red dresses. After showing the pictures, he said he'd leave it at that, but Steph pressed him. Sorry, I'm just taking this in. Nelson said the girls were his daughters, but when the police were interrogating him, he wouldn't tell them anything about what he had done. He bragged that he got away with it because of family. He said when he got rid of the kids, he had planned it and kept his mouth shut so there was no heat on him. Nelson told Steph that they were blood brothers now. I fucking hate this man. Okay, now it's April 12, 2005, and Nelson had a job as a, trans- a job to transport a package from Montreal to Ottawa. They sent him to multiple different locations before telling him the actual location. Yeah, they were just fucking him around. <laughs> they wanted to make it seem legit, right? I'm fucking dead. That's I think they so were just funny. fucking with him at this that point. That is hilarious. So when they finally got to the actual location, they would trade a bag of fake passports for $50,000 cash. During this time, the buyer was more interested in talking about the bu- talking about the business and his connections. So Steph promptly got up. Walked over to the buyer and slapped him in the face. I appreciate the lengths that Steph got in. Get this man a Grammy. (laughs) He's not a singer. Get him an Oscar. Oh, an Oscar. I don't know. So a few days later, Nelson flew back to Newfoundland. He told Jennifer he was bringing her to Halifax so she could meet all of his co-workers and their girlfriends. Jennifer had no fancy clothes, and she was insecure about bringing the clothes she did have in comparison to all the nice clothes Nelson had bought for himself over the past few months. 
he did buy her a new coat while he was in New Brunswick, but that was the extent of it. Like, get fucked. He was excited for her to meet Carol. When they arrived in Nova Scotia, Pat was there to pick them up in the airport. Jennifer could tell that Nelson and Pat had become very close over the past few weeks. It was hard to believe that Nelson had landed a job that paid so good and required him to travel across the provinces. So he had all this money and didn't get Jennifer not even, like, mm-hmm. an out. Okay. It just it gets worse. <laughs> well, we can talk about So one thing we didn't mention, we talked about it a little bit, was after he got into that car accident, he ended up getting a settlement of, like, $28,000. And he was, like, hiding money from Jennifer. He hid it in a big envelope in his closet, and she found and it. And she found it, and when he came home, she got rotted at him about it, and he bring her, he brought her out $300, but then caught it on fire in front of her. Sick. Conti whore. And I don't even know what, I, like, he, I guess he gambled the rest of the way. He gambled oh, a lot, sure, right? for sure, stupid bitch. Yeah, all he cared about was money, that's it. Anyways, Jennifer felt like she was in a whole new world in Halifax. She was in awe. Throughout the trip, Jennifer started getting comfortable with Carol, which was nice because when the men would have to do business, they could spend some time together. One day, Carol wanted to go shopping, so her boyfriend Pat handed her $200. Surprisingly, Nelson went into his wallet from his pocket and gave Jennifer a brand new $100 bill. Jennifer couldn't believe it. She was so excited to go shopping with Carol. But as you can guess, that excitement was short-lived when Nelson pulled Jennifer to the side and told her that he only gave her that money because Pat gave some to Carol. He whispered in her ear, don't spend a cent of it. At the mall, Carol was flicking through some clothes as normal, but noticed Jennifer hadn't bought anything. Jennifer just explained that she didn't see anything she liked, and that was the end of it. On the cab drive back to the hotel, Jennifer felt guilty that Carol had to pay for the cab ride to the mall, so reluctantly, she paid the $20 fare. She knew Nelson would be mad, and a few hours later, he returned to the hotel. The first thing he asked her was where his money was. Of course, she explained the situation, but to her surprise, he let it go. He was still mad, but not as mad as he normally was. That night, they flew back to Newfoundland. But it wasn't long, and Nelson was back in Halifax once again. May 14, 2005, Nelson was tasked on breaking into an impound to retrieve something that a, something from a car that belonged to one of the members of the organization who had gotten caught drunk driving. <laughs> they, they made this man... <laughs> oh, my God. I love like, these men. Wait. At 1.30 a.m., Nelson put on a pair of gloves and a ski mask, took a bag and, set, and a set of bolt cutters and broke open the lock and entered the compound. Doing that. Steph was with him, by the way, when the when they did this. When he broke the window of the car, the alarm went off, so he grabbed a bag from under the seat and took off. The bag contained thirty thousand dollars. Cash. All the money talked about in this, cash. Every bit of it. Why the fuck? Um no big deal. I can just picture him with the fucking ski mask on. Anyways. Like the hamburger. Right? <laughs> Apparently, this job paid Nelson good because when he returned to Newfoundland, the first thing he did was bring Jennifer to Norris Arm to pick out a headstone for the girls. He bought them a huge headstone. Well, it was the least he could do after killing them. Jennifer was starting to like the new Nelson more and more. This time, he was because he was making money. It felt good, even though he's still an asshole. And he's disgusting and ugly. 
March 16th, 2005, Nelson headed to Vancouver. Steph had a job for him that could pay him up to $25,000. Nelson was obviously interested, but it had to be authorized by the big boss. The next day, Steph brought Nelson to a warehouse in Port Coquitlam. Coquitlam? How do you say that? Coquitlam? Coquitlam? It's in British Columbia. Port Coquitlam. Port Coquitlam. People are going to be like, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? It's probably like Port Charlie. I feel like it's, Anyways, it's guys, a common I'm doing place. My best. You should know. Coquitlam. Coquitlam. Where they met a man that Nelson believed was a member of the Hells Angels. Hey. <laughs> Poor Nelson. No. No. Steph gave the man the suitcase that Nelson had brought from Montreal in exchange for $20,000 cash. The very next day, Steph picked up Nelson at his hotel so they could deliver a package across town. Suddenly, Steph got an urgent phone call to meet with the big boss. Oh. Then they headed over towards the Vancouver Yacht Club. They boarded a boat and were served wine while they waited for the boss. He finally arrived and introduced himself as Al. Steph introduced Nelson as his newfie buddy. Nelson was then escorted outside so Steph and Al could talk privately. A little while later, Steph explained to Nelson that if he wanted to be involved in the $25,000 job, Al had to check into him first to make sure he wasn't a rat and that he wouldn't cause any problems. Nelson and Steph were driving back to Vancouver when Nelson started telling Steph how poor he was. He told him about all the food banks, sleeping on the floor, and that they couldn't afford to pay their heat and light bills. How Jennifer had to make her own pads and tampons out of rags and plastic bags. He told Steph he never wanted to go back to living like that. Steph asked Nelson why he would say if Jennifer said he was traveling too much, and Nelson said that if he had a choice, he would leave her. Well, bitch, she tried to leave you multiple times, and you made her come back. He's fucked, and I don't understand him. I hate him. Anyways, the next day, Nelson returned to the island once again and was paid $4,000. During the time Nelson was gone, Jennifer would often run out of food and have to rely on the food banks so she could eat. Like, it's so fucked. Like, he was living in lavish for all this whole time, and she, who lost she, everything. She didn't know any of this until, like, the trial. That's she, so fucked. It's so sad. Um, they did have a car, but it was... A standard and she couldn't drive it if jennifer was really desperate for food she would call nelson and beg him for money over the time she had learned that nelson would hide his 20 dollars bills around the house and if she needed money badly enough she he would tell her where he hid them when nelson arrived home he randomly brought jennifer straight to a car dealership to buy her an automatic since she couldn't drive the standard he settled on a nearly brand new pontiac sunfire oh my god that cost $10,000. Before Nelson headed back to the mainland, he told Jennifer that she could only drive the car if she really needed to. He literally wrote down the amount of kilometers on the car before he left and told her that when he came back, if he felt like she was driving it too much, he would take away the keys. Uh, as the weeks went on, Nelson traveled a little more and did a few more jobs, made some money, and then on June 9th, 2005, while Nelson and Steph were in Montreal... Steph got the call. The boss was in Montreal and uh, wanted to meet them. So they headed to the boss's hotel where they were welcomed by a bodyguard in the lounge who brought them up to Al's room. When they got to the room, Al asked Steph and the bodyguard to leave. 
So Nelson sat on the couch. The drapes were closed, and Al confronted Nelson about his past. Particularly the allegations that he had murdered his twin daughters. Al told Nelson that a drug dealer was offering up some information to the police about the girl's death. Nelson denied it. Al told Nelson that if he wanted to do a big job, then he had to tell the truth so the organization could deal with the drug dealer. Nelson said that he had a seizure the day the girls drowned, and he didn't kill them. Al pressed him, telling him that the organization didn't want the police snooping around. Eventually, Nelson cracked. He confessed to killing Karen and Krista. He talked about how he would rather them dead than be in the custody of his brother. Nelson explained that he struck them in the shoulder. Like, pushed them off the wharf. Oh. Like, pushed them. <sighs> Al complimented him, telling him he was smart and pulled off the perfect murders. Nelson said sometimes it pays to think that way. Two hours later, Nelson left the room and was excited that he was accepted into the big job. June 11th, 2005, and at this point, Nelson had been paid $15,000 for four months' work. So he was pretty excited that he would be making $25,000 off one single job where all he had to do was drive and deliver packages in St. John's. During his stay at the hotel in town, Steph and another man showed up first thing in the morning with $50,000 cash. Man, I wish I had all this money. (laughs) Steph told Nelson all he had to do was take the money to his house in Grand Falls, and the two of them were on the road. They stopped in Clarenville for a bite to eat, and Nelson expressed how grateful he was that Al was going to help him out with his situation about the girls. He talked about how he regretted not having money when the girls were alive because he would have been able to afford a lawyer to make sure his brother never got custody of the twins and he wouldn't have had to kill them. He went on and on about how they were going to take care of the drug dealer who had dirt on Nelson and how excited he was to get paid the $25,000 from the big job. Steph assured him that since they were back on the island, the drug dealer would be taken care of. Steph told Nelson that they would take care of the drug dealer, that when they took care of the drug dealer, they would call Nelson, and Nelson would have to go to the local Walmart so he could be captured on camera to provide an alibi. <laughs> this, that is fucked. Just, just you wait. During this discussion, Steph got a phone call from Al saying he wanted Steph to check out the scene at Little Harbor where the girls had drowned. Nelson and Steph made their way to the dock, and Steph told Nelson that Al wanted to know if anyone could have been watching him the day of the murders. Nelson assured him that no one was around. He was absolutely sure of it. Al wanted to see the layout of the area just in case someone saw it. They walked out towards the wharf where the girls had drowned. Nelson explained that the events on August 4, 2002. Let's go out and see some fishies. That's what I told them. Steph crouched down, and Nelson showed him how he bumped his daughters off the wharf. Nelson and Steph continued on their way to Grand Falls. With Nelson home, Jennifer finally had some groceries and some money to get things done. She noticed that they really didn't have clean clothes and definitely needed to make a trip to the laundromat. Since Nelson had money, they loaded up the entire back seat with dirty clothes in garbage bags and headed off to the laundromat. During that time, while the clothes were still driving, drying, the clothes were driving. Mm-hmm. During that time, while the clothes were still drying, Nelson got a call that the job was done and that they needed to go to Walmart right away to secure his alibi. Confused, Jennifer piled all the wet clothes into garbage bags and they packed up the car once again and took off to Walmart. He drove like a maniac, telling Jennifer to do what he said and not to ask any questions. She thought he was losing his mind. They finally arrived, got out of the car, walked into the Walmart, and Nelson stopped dead in his tracks. He told Jennifer to look up, 
So she did. And for three whole minutes, they stood there staring at the Walmart security camera. <laughs> what a fucking weirdo, man. They just stood there getting that alibi. When they got home, Jennifer was still as confused as ever. Nelson was on edge and jumped when his phone rang. It was Steph. He needed Nelson to go to Gander right away. Nelson told Jennifer he needed her license to go to the Gander airport, which made absolutely no sense. Jennifer knew something was wrong, but Nelson was gone, and she figured she would just make supper like she had planned. (laughs) Jennifer got out her frying pan, grabbed some salmon, and threw it on the pan. As she was cooking, there was a knock on her door. It was the police. And they asked her if she was Jennifer Hart. She said yes. The police told her that Nelson was in the police station again, and they had arrested him for the murder of Karen and Krista. Jennifer's world fell apart once again. Jennifer couldn't believe it. Nelson had murdered the twins, and the police had found out the truth. Jennifer was brought to Gander by a woman named Lori from Victim Services. She explained to Jennifer that Nelson had confessed, and the RCMP had suspicions that Nelson's story didn't add up. So four months prior, they set up a big sting operation called Mr. Big. Lori explained that Steph and Pat were undercover operators and had convinced Nelson that he was working for an organization like the mob. That they had recently offered him a job that paid him a lot of money to be, but to be, but in order to be approved for the job, he had to come clean about what happened to the girls. Jennifer asked what Nelson said. Lori told her that Nelson said he pushed him off the wharf. When they got to Gander, Jennifer retrieved Nelson's car from the police compound, and not knowing what to do, she drove straight to Nelson's mother's house. Nelson's mother was fully convinced that he didn't do it and the police had set him up and trapped him. At this point, Jennifer was going back and forth between Nelson being innocent and not innocent. A few days after he was arrested, Nelson was transferred to the penitentiary in St. John's. Jennifer returned to Grand Falls. She felt lost, confused, and sad. She cleaned up the house and lid down for a nap. She never wanted to wake up. But the phone rang, and she went. And when she answered it, it was Nelson from prison. He sounded panicked, begging Jennifer to get him out of there. He was worried about the welfare check and what Jennifer had done with it. He told her to buy what she needed and to send him the rest. So the next day, Jennifer picked up some groceries, filled up the car, and sent the rest of the money to the pen. Why? Jennifer bought a new overnight bag from Bentley, okay, and picked up some stuff at Walmart that Nelson wanted. By the time she was done, the bag was full, and she barely had enough money left over to pay rent. Nelson was still asking for money, which she did not have. Nelson was also calling her collect every day from prison, sometimes multiple times a day, which was raising her phone bill more and more. While Nelson was in prison, he still had... (laughs) Sorry, I just... This really made me excited. While Nelson was in prison, he had been beaten up by the guards and left in isolation. His mother called the prison to complain about how Nelson was being treated. She also called Open Line and, like, talked about this for, like, 30 minutes. So if anyone wants to listen to that, uh, the video's on YouTube. So just type in Nelson Hart's mother, Open Open Line. line. Even though Nelson had spent a lot of his time in solitary, Jennifer couldn't couldn't sympathize with him. And even though Jennifer supported Nelson's mother, she was still suspicious of Nelson being responsible for the deaths of the girls. All right, guys, we're going to get into the trial now. The trial. The trial. All right. The trial was set for the beginning of February 2006. Nelson's mother is still fully convinced that Nelson was being framed 
and there was no way she was letting her son being locked away in jail. Nelson's mother worked hard to make sure Nelson was being represented well while he was on trial. Derek Hogan from the Legal Aid Commission was chosen to represent him. The trial had begun, and Nelson was brought into the courtroom with chains around his feet. Reporters rushed to the front to take pictures of him. He kept his head down, and camera, but cameras still focused on him. The first person to take the stand was the police officer that was on the scene at Little Harper on August 4, 2002. Jennifer only realized that... For the next week, she would have to relive the worst day of her life over and over again. By the way, for people who are confused about like the title of this being Tragedy in Gander Lake, um, Little Harbor is attached to Gander Lake, by the way. Just wanted to throw that in there. Anyways, up next was the doctors who examined Karen and Krista after they died. Jennifer was in agony. The trial lasted two weeks. During that time, they watched tapes of Nelson at the police station just hours after the girls had died. Nelson's brother had taken the stand, and Jennifer's family had taken the stand. When Jennifer's stepfather was on the stand, he talked about a conversation he had with Nelson, where Nelson said he would rather make away with the girls before he let someone else take them. Jennifer also took the stand, but after giving some of her testimony... She bursted into tears and needed to take a break. The questioning then turned to Nelson and his seizures. The court wanted to know if he had taken his medication the day of the drowning. Jennifer had said that he had, and she knew this for fact because she was the one who had given them to him. Questions were then asked about Nelson's brother Mervyn and the day the social worker had called him to see if the family could have stayed with him. They asked Jennifer they being the court, asked Jennifer how he, being Nelson, felt about them going to stay with his brother. Jennifer told the court that Nelson did not want her or the girls to stay with him, and she remembered that day very well. Next was the endless probe into the, into the details of Mr. Big. The court wanted to know about her involvement, Jennifer's involvement. Jennifer tried her best to remember the details. They asked if Nelson said how Krista ended up in the water. Jennifer said he said he had a seizure. He said that when I got down to Little Harbor. He said he had one of those small ones, petite mall, not grand mall. Mr. Linehan? Yeah, I think so. Approached Jennifer with the document, Jennifer's statement. He asked Jennifer if she had mentioned anything about the seizure in her statement the day of the drowning. Jennifer replied no. Linehan then asked... But in the later statement, you had said he had a seizure, or that something else had happened. When questioned, Jennifer could not say where exactly she had heard that Nelson had a seizure. When asked if she had any idea at all where she had first heard of the seizure, Jennifer said, Well, after I came back from PEIs, when I found out he came to the police and told them he had a seizure. That was after the girl's deaths. I came back in December. Nelson had not told the police about the seizure because he did not want to lose his license. Now it was time for the cross-examination by Nelson's lawyer. And Jennifer was extremely nervous for this. Mr. Hogan brought forward Nelson's statement from the interview. This is a quote from Nelson. Remember the day you was in doing your hair and I stood by the side? You turned into the wall. I wanted to tell you I got sick, you know out there and i said if i tells her she will probably go hysterical and when he talks about getting sick that means seizures Seizures. that was the first time nelson had told jennifer about the seizure 
Jennifer recalled that somewhere along the line, Nelson had told her he had gotten sick. Jennifer did struggle to answer this question, and then she was excused from the stand. When she sat down next to Nelson's mother, she had hoped she didn't say anything to make her mad. Then Nelson's mother was called to the stand. Pearl Hart. She was asked how many kids she had, and she said three. Nelson, Mervyn, and Stephen. The Crown asked her about Jennifer and Nelson's relationship, about their move from PEI back to the island just a few months before the girls' deaths. They questioned, Pearl, they questioned why Pearl and Nelson went from talking every single day to no contact at all. She replied that they stopped talking because Nelson came home empty-handed and had nothing in place for Jennifer and the girls, and Nelson needed help with accommodations. But Pearl told Nelson no. She was living with her boyfriend Eric at the time, and Eric did not like Nelson. Nelson was very disappointed and hurt. But Pearl also explained another reason she said no was because she thought social services would no longer help them if they were taken in by someone else. She also didn't have room to accommodate four people in her home. Nelson was upset by this, so he wouldn't talk to Pearl and wouldn't let her see the girls. Pearl even drove around looking for them because she was so concerned for the children. Pearl called social services and asked them why Nelson was denied an apartment, and social services told her that if he didn't find a place to live, the kids would be taken into foster care. So Pearl contacted her son Mervyn, since he was able to provide for them. And Nelson was furious about this. Derek Hogan was now questioning Pearl. He would ask about Nelson's health. Nelson was diagnosed with epilepsy when he was four years old. Pearl became very protective over him throughout his life. She needed financial aid while raising Nelson because of his epilepsy, but she was denied by social services when she reached out because she had made too much money. They actually encouraged her to quit her job so social services would look out for Nelson 100%, but she didn't want to go on welfare. There were months where Nelson could cost thousands of dollars. The trips to St. John's to see specialists and doctor's appointments would cause them to make sacrifices because of his seizures. They would never go hungry, but there were often times that he didn't get a birthday gift. Hogan asked Pearl if she thought there were ever times that she thought Nelson shouldn't be alone with the kids. And she said yes, but only because of his epilepsy. They asked her if he told her about his seizure on August 4th, 2002. Pearl said that Nelson told her he didn't have a seizure on that day. But he later changed his story about a month and a half later and told her that he did have a seizure while he was out at the wharf with the girls. Pearl admitted that the thought had crossed her mind that he may have had a seizure the day the girls died, but she didn't want to press him about it before because she knew he was embarrassed about it and always tried to hide his seizures. They asked Pearl what grade Nelson, like, finished in school. She replied with five. He did grade five for three years. Wow. The next person to take the stand was RCMP officer Phil Matthews. He explained the sting operation. The first phase was an actual in was the actual investigation took place in summer 2004, but as we know, that didn't work out as they hoped. That's when the undercover operation began. Constable Dave Chubbs, oh God, not another Chubbs. <laughs> Constable Dave Chubbs had transferred into to Gander the spring of 2004, and he had previously worked in British Columbia with an undercover homicide unit. Since Chubbs was available at the time, it was the perfect opportunity to start the sting. In the fall of 2004, they submitted the plan of the operation to get author authorized. They estimated that they would need around 90 days to run the sting and requested 173 
thousand five hundred and seventy five dollars. <laughs> Is that right? Uh, <laughs> a lot of money. Hundred over a hundred grand. <laughs> By November 2004, the sting had been approved, but things did not go as planned. I'm starting to lose my mind. The operation was going to take longer than 90 days. By mid-April 2005, they ended up requesting an additional, an additional $148,873. I'm so happy you're saying these numbers. <laughs> I'm not. In April, after playing out 33 different scenarios, me, the, they extended... They accepted they would need another 27 scenarios in order to get a confession out of Nelson. Holy fuck. Specifically because Nelson was so paranoid during the entire sting. Matthews explained that they didn't realize that they would move into the operation from Newfoundland to Montreal to Halifax. But it was becoming too problematic to continue the sting in Newfoundland because it was such a small province there and there were so many police officers. At the end of the day, the operation ended up costing $413,268. Holy shit, Batman. Jennifer sat in the courtroom every day for an entire week, absolutely gobsmacked about everything she was hearing. She was stunned that Nelson had been lured in, in by police, thinking he had made some good friends and gotten a good job. She actually felt sad for him. I don't. Fuck him, stupid ass. She had no idea about all the money Nelson had been making, and she was shocked to learn the details of his trips around all the provinces while she was stuck at home trying to find $20 bills that he had hidden around the apartment. Meanwhile, Pearl was reassuring Jennifer that it was all a lie. Nelson had been tricked into giving a false confession. Mm. But on Thursday morning, everything changed for Jenny. A videotape had been loaded into a machine at the front of the courtroom. A man named Sergeant Haslett was on the stand, and he described the pictures they would play on the screen. A picture of the hotel room with the drapes closed, a man on the phone walking back and forth, Steph sitting on a couch, and then Nelson comes into frame. Jennifer struggled to hear the conversation on the video. She listened as Nelson confessed to killing their daughters, and her ears rang. At this point, Jennifer had had enough. She was ready to run across the courtroom, grab Nelson, and haul him to the floor. But she ran from the courtroom as quickly as possible. She bolted through the door so fast that she didn't know someone had followed behind her. The woman had put her arm around her shoulder and led her into a small office. It was the woman from Victim Services. Lori? Uh, I don't know if it was Lori. I think it was someone else. Not sure. She asked Jennifer if she wanted to give a victim impact statement so she could tell the court how she felt about everything. But Jennifer had no idea what she was talking about and didn't want to give the court anything. Jennifer sobbed in the office until she felt strong enough to head back into the courtroom. She returned, sat down next to Pearl, who once again stated that she didn't need to worry because the cops trapped him into it. Jennifer asked if Nelson was going to testify, but Pearl said he was nervous that he would get up there and have a seizure. The judge even offered Nelson to screen a screen to block out the crowd and to have a doctor present in case Nelson ha did have a seizure. But they wouldn't let him testify in private because he had lied about his seizures in the past to get more money from social services. He had also lied about his seizures so he could keep his driver's license. In the end, Nelson did not want to t testify. Jennifer believed the real reason he didn't want to testify was because she knew Nelson couldn't lie in front of a big crowd and that he was afraid that people would see right through his story. In the end, the verdict was guilty. 
Although Jennifer had sat through two weeks of his trial, part of her was still in denial about Nelson actually being able to kill their daughters. Nelson then got up in front of the courtroom to say a few words before they took him away to prison. He said, I was told not to go against the crime boss. I tried to tell them the truth, but they didn't want to believe it. As Jennifer and Pearl left the courtroom, a crowd of reporters wanted interviews from everyone. Jennifer was too exhausted and wouldn't say anything to the media. But Pearl had plenty to say. Of course she did. She would go on about how there was more to the story and that Nelson faced a grim future behind bars. The whole way home, Pearl went on and on about the verdict and how she would fight to have him released. Jennifer went home and stayed with Mrs. Hurt, where she received plenty of phone calls from the reporters, and she would always have to say the same thing. Jennifer was exhausted, but never slept a wink. The next morning, Jennifer could barely eat. She was tired of talking about Nelson, and all she wanted to do was be alone. Even though she stood by Nelson and his mother throughout all of this, part of her still wondered if Nelson was actually guilty. But she quickly put that thought out of her mind, packed her bags, and went home. On her drive home, Jennifer suddenly felt a horrible headache coming on. When she got to her apartment, she took a Tylenol and lid down. For two full weeks, she didn't leave her apartment, until one morning she woke up and she didn't feel right. She went into her bathroom and felt dizzy. She was so lightheaded she had to sit down on the floor. Then everything went black. She actually thought she had gone blind. But with no one around, no phone in her apartment, Jennifer had to wait it out, wait out this episode until she felt okay enough to go to the doctor. Turns out she'd suffered a mini stroke from all the stress she was under. Holy fuck! Oh my god! Sin. As the months went on, Jennifer's trips to visit the Hurts became fewer and fewer. After the sentencing, Jennifer found it difficult to be away from the girl's headstone. So as soon as Nelson returned to prison, she moved back to Gander to be closer to them. Sadly, as things began to settle in Jennifer's life, she got a phone call from her sister Penny. Their dad had passed away after his gallbladder had ruptured. Her world fell apart again. Around the same time Jennifer's father passed away, a new man walked into her life. His name was Scott, and he was a taxi driver. Scott treated Jennifer like a queen, and she was finally happy and was now being treated the way she deserved. Yes. When she suffered a back injury, he was there to help her. He cooked her meals, and he helped her with chores. He even helped bring her to visit the girls' graves. He did all these things without Jennifer needing to ask. But Jennifer's happiness failed to last once again on the morning of September 30th, 2011, when a police officer showed up at her door telling her that Scott had been killed in a serious car accident. What the fuck? I hate it here. He had left Jennifer's house to deliver a package to the hospital, and that was the last time she saw him alive. So fucking sad, man. Like, like can she catch a break, please? She's literally grieved her entire life. Jennifer's life finally started to come together, but she wanted Nelson out of it for good, so she went to the courthouse and filed for divorce. Of course Nelson would have had to make things difficult, but two weeks later the process began and the divorce was finalized. In August of 2014, the Supreme Court of Canada decided the Mr. Big operation used to obtain Nelson Hart's confession was unreliable and inadmissible. The Crown withdrew the charge of murder and Nelson Hart was released from prison. Nelson served a total of nine years in prison. The investigation into the deaths of Karen and Krista Hart could possibly be reopened if police find any additional evidence. Jennifer still holds out hope. In the book, which came out, I don't know when the book came out, shortly after 
he was released, I guess. She was engaged and living in Gander, but I don't know much. I don't know where she is now or where he is. But fuck, man. Every time we cover a fucking case in Canada, the justice system fails it. Yeah. Yeah. It actually pisses me off so much. There was so many clues and times that those children could have been saved. Not even that the children, but like Jennifer too. Oh, I know. Like, it's easy enough for someone to say, why didn't she just leave? No, I know. But like, you don't know. Like, you're in an abusive relationship. Like, he was obviously fucking insane. He mm-hmm. smeared shit all over the walls. <laughs> he killed two kids. Like, yeah, he, clearly it's not, you know, working right up here. Bragged about it. Gets out of jail. Like, what? Fuck the crown. I'm going to say it. Yeah. Why? Why is that inadmissible? Because you filmed him when he didn't fucking know? Who cares? Like, people get filmed without knowing every goddamn day. I think as, like, you take two lives. I don't give a fuck about your rights. Like, I don't care if you were set up. And your own children. It's so messed up. Like, like, where is he now? I don't know. But when I find out, I'm smearing my own shit all over his walls. I'd love to know where he is. Like, like... And we'll never know. He's probably in witness protection program. But, like, do you think... Like, there's no way he could be on the island. Because everyone yeah, would know who he was. That's what I'm saying, too. Like, th- if he was on the island, he wouldn't be alive. No, like, I wonder where he is. Probably in fucking Halifax somewhere. Mm. I, even on PEI, like, I feel like he wouldn't... I wonder... Like, because no one... Like, you search this up on YouTube. There's no one has done videos on this. I wonder if, like, we... When we post this, if, like, anyone's like, Oh, my God, that's my neighbor. I hope... I hope... I hope that happens. Fucking crazy. We're gonna get a cease and assist now. From who Nelson shit smearing her? Get fucked. I dare you. I hope Jennifer is Yeah, we wish you the best, Queen. We hope you're doing well. I hope she's finally getting like the life that she deserves yeah. after like, going through so much trauma and losing so many people. And just... I hope time is treating her well. Yeah. I assume she's probably still in Gander to be close to the grave. Yeah, for sure. Hope like you know she was engaged. I hope that's going well. And if you want an edible arrangement, please reach out. You always say that. I really want to send like these things make me feel so bad for the people involved. Like this this case was the hardest case I've ever researched ever in my life. Yeah, it's sad. Out of all of it, yours was for you when we did season one. It was. Dear Zachary, this is my dear Zachary. I can't. E- I still can't even talk about dear Zachary. That it's just not right. It's that, not fair. I I find too, especially with the local cases, like and in Gander too. Like I was there with my dad. We were probably getting ready to go to the derby. It's just like these kids have so much promise and like life ahead of them and potential to be whatever they want to be. They'd- and they have no chance. Like obviously. They didn't think going to the park with their father would be their no. fucking doom. And then, you know, he was like, let's look at some fishies. That's what he said to him. And he... And would pinch him. When Jennifer wasn't around, he would pinch him to make him cry. I think the thing with the stroller really, that took me out. I was like, what the fuck? This and then he just admits it? I like, know. This is why I think people should literally have to go through a mental evaluation to be able to conceive. It's heartbreaking that, like... She kept going back to him, too. Like, she felt like she had no other choice, like... Mm. Well, she also thought, like, the last thing you would think was that the father of your children would kill them, you know? No, it's it's devastating. Like, like, I would never... I would never judge a a woman who is in an abusive relationship. And if you do... Anyone can read that book and, and say 
anything and everything about Jennifer and, and blame her. And, you know, why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you just leave? Yeah, but, but like, she she was working with what she had, and she did everything. She had nothing. She, like, no one, no one is ever prepared for situations no. like this. Like, there's not a guideline. There's not a book that teaches you how to deal with this shit. Like, she didn't know what the fuck was going on. No, and she didn't have an education. Obviously, she had the twin, the girls. Like, she couldn't just, she couldn't afford childcare. Mm-hmm. She didn't have a job, like. She was dependent on Nelson's welfare check that he would literally, she would never see it. Mm. And he would just go and gamble it. He didn't give a fuck. And it was sad that she didn't have a choice. Yeah. It is really sad. This case is, hits too close to home to me. Like big time. Like I could just, reading the book, talking about it, I can just picture everywhere they were in Gander and like, I don't know, it just... It, it just makes me feel so sad. Like, I would, I didn't really know about the case until the book came out. And, like, I'm like, my God, I've been swimming there with my friends. Mm-hmm. We would jump off that wharf when we were teenagers and go swimming. Like, yeah. it makes me sick to think about that. Like, I never thought about that place ever. Like, I never thought about Little Harbor the same after yeah. I read the book. So but how do you feel about Park Avenue? The, the sting was fucking... How the fuck did he I not know? I love how they were fucking him around. Ooh, that brought me joy. But, like, how the fuck did he not know? Because he's dumb as fuck. True. He's dumb as rocks. Grade five three times. Like, how do you do grade five three times, you stupid fuck? The fact that they had to come up with, like, 33 scenarios and then 27 more. Mm. I don't know how to do math, so. That's a lot of scenarios. It's <laughs> a lot. He did grade five three times. 30, 33 and then. 27. 60. Yeah. Yeah, I knew that. Thank you, voice. Anyways, guys, it's been a crazy season. Thank you so fucking much for supporting us in our second season. Our merch went really well, by our the way. Our merch went really well. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thanks um, to the people who bought it. Yeah. Thanks to our friends who said they were going to buy and actually did. You are <laughs> iconic. And thank you um, to all the also local buys here who are in the same kind of circle as us who supported us too we fucking love you we're not exactly sure when we'll be back for season three yet yeah like we said we're filming we're filming our tv show so we're gonna be a little bit busy if you want to get your fix in while we're gone just check us out on bell 5 tv1 this summer for abandoned nl or check us out on any other social medias. Yeah. Uh, we frequent those. Um, my Snapchat. No, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, thank you guys so much. We hope to see you in season three. We will update you closer to then when we will be coming back. And thank you so much for loving us and listening to us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it has been, truly. Thank you, guys. We love you. We love you. This is Melon Kids Podcast Season 2, signing off. We'll be talking. Oh, God. Thank fuck that's over. (laughs) That was the longest podcast ever. Holy fuck.